a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. This past Sunday, which would have been September the 6th, 2021, Danny Lemons had invited me to be a substitute teacher in the Kingdom Seeker class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle Church in Sweetwater, which is our church home now. And today I'm making a video of the same material I tried to cover in that class. Turned out to be a lot longer than I expected, but that's not surprising, I guess. That happens a lot. Anyway, it also turned out to be the a kind of kickoff Sunday for a new three-year study cycle. We use the Lifeway series called The Gospel Project, and it's a three-year study cycle. Lifeway describes the series like this. They say it's a chronological, Christ-centered, there are key words right there, Christ-centered journey through the storyline of the Scripture. So what they're trying to do in these Scripture passages that we study over a three-year period is show how all the Bible points to Jesus. And I think that's wonderful because it does. <laughs> so here we are starting all over again at the beginning of a new cycle. And for the benefit of those who are in class that day, if you happen to be watching this right now and you were in class, what I plan to do is stop this video pretty close to where I was when we ran out of time in class. So if you were in class, you may want to just skip ahead to, to video number two. I'll have a part two to this study that will pick up where this one leaves off. So you may want to skip over to part two. So on Sunday, we began with Genesis 1, and we begin the biblical account of creation. So I want us to read some of it first. And as we read it, listen, guys, please, every time we read Scripture, we need to stop and think, what am I reading? This is God's Word. This is God's living, powerful Word, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to penetrate into my heart and my soul, my spirit, yeah, and, and help me understand God. God's giving us truth every time we read His Word. And we need to read His Word realizing what we're doing. The God who created the universe is telling us something that we need to hear. So we'll start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, of course, the creation account continues on, but we're going to stop there for now. But I want to underscore this and put it in bold print right at the beginning. Okay, I said it before we read it. This is God's word. God is the one who gave us these words. He gave them to Moses to write down for us. But God is speaking here through his man, Moses. Now, I think you probably know what most people today would say about this passage we just read. I'm talking about most people because most people are secularists, right? If they're trying to be nice and they want to be kind of positive and sweet, they might say, well, that's kind of an interesting kind of storytelling, isn't it? <laughs> it's a neat story. <laughs> but if you say, well, do you take it literally? They would probably look at you, roll their eyes a little maybe and say, that's that's." Kind of silly. Surely you don't expect me to take that literally. We don't take it literally. Why? Because they would say scientists. Now I'm putting that in scare quotes, okay? <laughs> the way they're using the word scientist. They would say scientists have learned about these things. They've learned that the universe and even life itself got here through an entirely naturalistic process over billions and billions and billions of years of time. And they would say, all the scientists agree with that, about that. And how do they know? Well, because they've seen some History Channel programs or whatever. And, but listen, that's not a true statement. All the scientists certainly do not agree about that. <laughs> but it's what a lot of people claim. And, and a lot of them, by the way, would say things like, well, if you don't agree with me, then you're not really a scientist. <laughs> yeah, you may have heard that kind of thing. Guys, listen to me now. This is very, very important. And I know it may seem a little bit tedious, but it's so important for us to understand this and really internalize this. There are many, many people in our culture today who have a worldview that should properly be called philosophical naturalism. Philosophical naturalism. It's a totally secular worldview. Sometimes they'll talk about God, but they mean something very different than the God of the Bible. We could call it a religion. It is. It's a, it's a secular religion. And listen, listen, don't miss this. What they want to do is take that philosophical worldview, their religion, and they want to rename it. You know what they want to call it? They want to call it science. <laughs> but it really isn't science at all. It's a set of faith beliefs. It's a religion. It just leaves God completely out of the picture as if there's no God at all. And guys, it's being taught to our kids all over the United States in publicly funded schools. It's a religion being force-fed to our kids to try to make nice little secularists out of them before they get anywhere near graduation. And they are succeeding to a great extent. And we Christians better be tuned into this. I better not chase that road, that rabbit down that road too far. But, but, but 
one of the main reasons we have so many people today who are so confused about almost everything. Think about it, guys. Look at our culture. I mean, everywhere you look, people are confused about marriage. There are tons of people today who actually believe that two men can be married to each other or two women can be married to each other. And why do they think that's okay? Why do they? Because they say, well, this is loving, you see. This is the loving thing to do. They're loving each other. We need to love them. It's all about love, you see. And they're confused about sex. They think it's just fine for people to have sex with each other, even if they're not in a marriage covenant, because you see, it's all about love. You see, they're loving each other. Now, guys, I hope you realize what they'll use the word, throw out around the word love a lot, but they have no idea what love really is. They don't know what they're talking about. But if they call what they want to do loving, they think, surely, surely you'll agree with me. How can you be opposed to love? You can't be opposed to love, can you? You see what I'm saying? It's not love. We don't have time to go into great depth right now about that. But the whole scheme, the whole worldview is really confused and demonic. They're confused about gender. They've convinced themselves that their gender can be whatever they want it to be because, they see, they think they're sovereign over their own lives. There's no God to tell them anything. They're sovereign over their own lives. So they think, well, my gender, it can even be fluid. You know, one day maybe I'm a man. Later on, I might decide I'm a woman. Later on, maybe I'll decide I'm just genderless. Or maybe I'll be bi-gender for a while. Maybe I'll be gender expansive. And then maybe I'll even make up my own brand new gender. Do you realize the list of genders now is getting just ridiculous? It's, it's so long. <laughs> You see what's happening? It's insane. It's incredible confusion, and ultimately it's demonic. Now, I know some of you right now, if you're listening and you've gotten this far, you're saying, Steve, you're sounding very unloving. Aren't these people made in God's image too? Don't you realize they're people? We need to love them. Of course they are. And we do love them, right? God tells us to love them. And, 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 and listen, guys, please don't miss this. To love people means telling people the truth. What corresponds to reality, God's truth? God's truth is homosexual behavior is wicked. It leads to really bad outcomes. Even when the people doing it seem to be really sweet and they have great intentions and they talk a lot about love. <laughs> Having sex outside a covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife is sin. Trying to change my God-given gender is wrong. Killing babies in the womb because they are inconvenient. All of these things are heinous sins. How did we get here? All of these things lead to bad outcomes, even if the people committing them are really, really sweet. But listen, if we love people, we'll tell them the truth. God made us male and female. We don't get to make that decision. I don't have the personal sovereignty to change my cellular structure, my bodily makeup. God's the one that decided that. If I try to do it, it'll inevitably, inevitably, guys, lead to bad outcomes. You say, well, I know somebody that did it and it's not led to a bad outcome. You don't know the whole truth for one thing and you don't see the end and neither do they yet, maybe. But if we, love, if we love people, we will warn them that sin leads to bad outcomes. We want people to know the truth. We need to do it lovingly. We need to do it graciously. But why? Why do we have so many insanely, foolishly confused people in our culture today? Why are so many people... Even at the highest levels of our culture, I'm talking about PhDs and professors in our academia and, and 
politicians at the very highest levels and judges and justices in the judicial system and, of course, people in the media whose faces are on national television all the time and, and many, many celebrities who are making millions and billions of dollars and, and leaders of large companies who are making millions and billions of dollars. Why are they going along with all this insanity as if somehow it really does make sense, which it does not? Guys, here it is. Starts right here. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if we can convince ourselves that the first verse in the Bible is just some kind of a interesting, maybe slightly entertaining mythical storytelling of some kind, if we can convince ourselves that the scientists have got it all figured out, and we can ignore God now, you see. We don't need God. And believe me, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And they've convinced themselves that that's true when it really isn't. When we can convince ourselves that in the beginning, somehow, mysteriously, without God, from an infinitesimally small point, some, some massive explosion happened. We call it the Big Bang. And an and incredibly hot plasma gas came out in atoms. Well, even pre-atoms, subatomic particles, energy flying around like crazy. And then billions and billions of years later, all of this somehow cooled down. And then somehow, by gravitational attraction and electromagnetic attraction, they somehow came together and just on their own. And, and, and here we are. <laughs> this incredibly complex and incredibly beautiful planet formed. And, and we're just a bunch of atoms that somehow randomly came together. And guys, if you just look at it a little bit more closely, you'll realize that's total nonsense. It's insanity. But if we can convince ourselves that the nonsense is true, and sometimes we can do that if we just find enough PhDs to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's the way it happened. <laughs> well, then you don't have to concern yourself with sin anymore, do you? You just decide for yourself what's right or wrong. You don't have to worry about judgment. There can't be a judgment. You can do whatever you want to, and you can call it love. <laughs> and if someone comes to you and says, wait a minute, you better listen to the truth. You better see what God says about that. You better look at the evidence that comes from creation a little more closely. Well, if we don't want to hear that, we'll just shut them down. We'll call them unloving. We'll call them bigots. We'll call them haters. We can do that. And you know what we wind up doing? We wind up ruining everything, destroying everything that's precious and God's beautiful plan for us. Starts right here with what we do with Genesis 1-1. Now listen, guys. Today, right now, I'm begging you. Don't let yourself be intimidated or cowed by the so-called assured results of so-called scientists, which are all too often, like I said, they're just dressed up philosophical naturalists, and they're trying to act sophisticated, and they may throw out a lot of vocabulary words you don't know, but many of them are not real scientists, even though they may have PhDs. What they're doing is not science, it's religion, it's philosophy. Listen to me. Don't miss this. I promise you the time is coming when every one of us, including these fools, you say, that's a strong word. I know it's a strong word. I wouldn't choose to use it if God didn't tell us that that's what they are. God says, when they leave me out, they're fools. He says that more than once in his word. These fools, as well as every one of us, is going to stand in awe of the creator God. I promise. The God who told Moses to write down these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.
And you know what? Right here in Genesis 1-1, we're seeing the awesome power and divine nature of God. He's going to talk about that in Romans chapter 1. And by the way, he makes it clear, even here he's beginning to show us, but he makes it clear in the scripture, not just God the Father, but also God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for God here in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. It's a plural word. It hints at the fact that, yes, God is one God. He makes that very clear. But he reveals himself to be three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Elohim. And all three persons, all three of them, are involved in the process of creation. So in verse 2, for example, he says the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. And then a few verses later, in verse 26, God gives Moses this. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, we're going to get to that verse next week, but I just wanted to see the plural pronouns here. Let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is three persons, one God three persons. When we get to the New Testament, we find God revealing even more of himself and more clearly what he's like and what this was, what was going on here in Genesis 1-1. For example, look what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith chapter. Remember that chapter? Starting, let's start with verse 1, but I want us to focus on verse 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, listen, we understand that the universe was created, how? By the word of God. The universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So he tells us here the universe was created by the word of God. Now, we know, of course, that can refer and does refer to the spoken word of God. He just spoke the words and the universe came into existence. And he makes that clear in Genesis 1. But John, the Apostle John, God inspired him to give us a little more light about this and what happened. And he begins his book, his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 1. And again, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who in Powered and enabled Moses to write Genesis 1-1, enables John to write John 1-1, and he made sure that both Moses and John started with the same three words because he wanted us to put these verses together, you see. So how does John 1-1 start? Well, you know, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's talking about God the Father working through God the Son, our Lord Jesus, of course. He makes that clear in verse 14 because he tells us there that the word that he's talking about became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, John said, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, do you see what God's doing? He's giving us a little more information here so we can put all this together. So in Hebrews, God tells us the universe was created by the word of God. And in John, we're told that word of God became flesh. It's Jesus. Now, I know some of you who 
study this Greek are going to say, wait a minute, Steve. Those are two different Greek words. In Hebrews, it's Ramon. John is Logos, and I understand that. There are, but both can be translated word. And while they do have slightly different connotations, they're both correctly translated. And it's hard to miss that connection, don't you think? Yeah, Jesus is the creator. Look what he gave us through Paul in Colossians. This is Colossians chapter 1. For by him, and he's talking about Jesus, all things were created. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, for the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. <laughs> Jesus, God the Son, it's not that he's just the one who came to this earth as a human being to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Oh, yes, he did that. But he's the creator. He's our creator. He's also our sustainer, as Paul makes clear. The Holy Spirit makes clear through Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Do you see what God's teaching us here? From the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1 to the very last verse of Revelation 22. <laughs> Zig Ziglar used to say, from Genesis to maps. Vicki and I had a Sunday school class that Zig Ziglar taught when we lived in Texas many years ago. But from Genesis to Maps, as Ziegler would say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the creator of God. Now listen, we Christians don't need to be afraid or intimidated to stand firm on this very clear biblical truth. Please don't be intimidated. Stand firm. But stay with me now. I'm going to get a little more complicated, so stay with me. It's also true. God created us, his human beings that he created in his image, to be curious. He did. He likes it. He wants us, in fact, I think he loves it, when we honestly desire to investigate his creation, when we have a curiosity about his creation, because he reveals himself through his creation, you see. I mean, yes, we're, we're curious about him. We want to study as much as we can and learn about him in his word. We ought to be curious. We ought to be studying. We ought to be trying to put it all together. But the same thing about his creation. He reveals himself that way. The theologians call it general revelation. God revealing himself through his creation. And listen, guys, when we honestly, honestly look deeply into his creation, the closer we look, the more totally blown away we will be by his glory and his genius and his engineering skills and his artistry and the beauty he's made and his power. I'm telling you guys, that's what you see when you look closely, honestly. I'm not talking about what the secularists claim they see there. I'm talking about what we really see when we look. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1? I want us to look at this. God's Word, again, this is God's Word that he gave through Paul, beginning, I'm going to begin in verse 18 of chapter 1. Listen, this is sobering scripture, truth, and it describes America today. We better take it seriously. Listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now listen to this. Who by their unrighteousness do what? You see that? By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Going on big time today. For what can be known about God is plain to them 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, guys, verse 22, claiming to be wise, what did they do? They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's what we mainly do today, images resembling mortal man, images in our own. We make ourselves gods, you know, birds and animals and creeping things. Listen, did you hear what he said in verse 20 there? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is a picture of secular America today. Now, if you're interested in pursuing this study, I hope you realize how powerful and important those verses are. I've got a series, I think there's seven of them, of studies on these verses. You can find them at Abounding Joy or, or, or on our YouTube pages, but I would encourage you to watch that and take it very seriously. But anyway, God's given us this curiosity, and He wants to urge us on with our curiosity to see Him more clearly, to give Him the opportunity to reveal more of His glory to us. And when we do, it blows us away, and we realize what an awesome God we serve. But now listen closely. Please don't miss this. Stay with me all the way through here. God is bigger, and God is more glorious, and God is more complex than we can grasp. You probably won't argue with that, will you? So is his creation, by the way. So when we start looking closely and trying to understand God, trying to understand his creation, listen, guys, we will inevitably always run into questions that we can't answer. That should not surprise us. That should sound pretty normal. God is infinitely big. He's created an awesomely complex creation. You remember Isaac Newton? Maybe the greatest scientist who ever lived. He, he loved God's Word. He did, he did a lot of Bible study in addition to his science studies. But, but Isaac Newton one time said something to the effect that he felt like a, a little child standing on the seashore looking out of the vast ocean wondering what else is out there. I mean, he realized that God's creation was way too big for us little puny mortals to figure out. You see what I'm getting at? There are going to be questions we can't answer. But now listen. Please stay with me. This is important. I know I'm saying it over and over, but perk up. Listen, it's right at this point that we can get ourselves into trouble because we have an enemy, the devil, and he's going to try very hard to work his way into our minds at exactly the point of these tough questions. I'm telling you guys, watch out for it. So when we come to a question that stumps us and we say, I don't understand this, some of us will be too quick to say, hmm, the Bible must not have gotten that right. Or, hmm, maybe this is just allegory. Maybe it's just storytelling. Or maybe God's using those secular scientists to help us realize that these first chapters of Genesis were really just the product of some primitive men trying to come up with an explanation and some fanciful stories that made sense to them, but we're not really to take it too seriously now. And some Christians, I'm talking about Christians, some Christians will feel compelled to try to figure out ways to make sure that what we read in Genesis is compatible with what we think modern-day scientists, again, I'll put it in quotes, 
have, have kind of figured out. Now, some of them have done some real science. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all science is bad. There's really good science going on out there. But it all points to God. <laughs> and Christians, and I really do believe the people I'm talking about right now really are Christians, thinking Christians, thinkers, students. They'll look at God's creation, and they'll look at the Bible, and they'll think, now, i got to make this fit. So they come up with ideas about how God did it. You see what I'm saying? True Christians, you see, will always agree that God's the creator. Christians will certainly realize, of course there's a God. Of course the creation is a creation but God. It couldn't have got here by chance. They'll realize that. But sometimes they differ a lot in how they think he did it. And because there's a lot of confusion in Christendom about these things, maybe it'd be a good idea, I think it's a good idea, to take just a little time today to try to understand where they're coming from. We won't finish it in the first video, but, but when you watch both videos, maybe you'll have a little better understanding of where all these Christians are coming from that disagree with each other about this stuff. Now, let me be just real honest with you. I'm going to be right up front with you. It seems to me personally that when we've been convinced that the Bible is God's Word, I'm speaking for Steve Hall, okay? I'm not speaking for anybody else. But when, we, when we're convinced the Bible is God's Word, and of course that's, I've been convinced of that long ago, and there are lots of reasons for that. You can learn why, some of the reasons anyway, in the Veritas series. But it seems the most straightforward way to read and interpret Genesis 1 is literally, literally, which I think tends to support what most people will call a young earth cosmology. A few thousands of years instead of billions and billions of years. So if we interpret Genesis 1 this way, We'll simply believe that the days of Genesis 1 are literal days, just like it sounds when you first read it, just as you read it naturally. And, and as I said, it, you'll conclude that God created everything thousands of years ago instead of billions of years ago. And to me, it seems to be the most natural way to read the Bible. But I, I feel like I have to point out there are problems with this way of interpreting it. Of course there are. There are questions. Some of them I have trouble answering, and I'll share some of those problems as we go along here in this study. But you know what? The truth is very few people would have doubted what we now call young earth cosmology until the past couple of hundred years when scientists began to say, well, actually, the earth really isn't thousands of years old. It's billions of years old. And now, if you don't believe it's billions and billions of years old, you're kind of looked at as a kook. You know, because of course it's billions and billions. Everybody knows it's billions and billions of years old. And that's caused many Christians to say, well, maybe we need to reevaluate how we interpret this chapter. Now, the problem for Christians who do begin to doubt that these chapters are really literal is this. Not only is reading it literally the most natural way to read it, there happens to be quite a bit of scientific evidence that, that comes from God's creation that he's given us that points to a young earth. I'm going to come back to all that. But I need to say, again, up front here, that there are strong, conservative, Bible-believing Christians. They really are Christians. They really love Jesus. And they're not young earth. They don't agree with me about this. Some of them teach what we call the gap theory. That was popularized in the old C.I. Schofield study Bible. And what the gap theory does is it suggests that there may have been billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And there is some biblical evidence for that, too. We'll look at some of that in a few minutes also as well. 
But a lot of other people teach what, what we sometimes call the day-age interpretation of Genesis 1. Very, very popular these days. A lot of the men that I really love and admire uh, are day-age guys. And sometimes they'll point out that 2 Peter chapter 3 says, well, you know, the Bible does say that, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so they believe that, well, maybe God could have meant millions or billions of years there in these days of Genesis chapter 1. And I think they're misusing that passage in Second Peter. But anyway, one of the most prominent advocates of day-age cosmology is probably Hugh Ross. Some of you have heard of Hugh Ross. He's got a ministry and a website called Reasons to Believe. A lot of good stuff there. Really, really. I'm serious. There is. And there have been some very godly men who've accepted this old earth interpretation. J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer, William Lane Craig, Chuck Colson, Norm Geisler, Greg Kokel, C.S. Lewis, Bernard Ram, Lee Strobel. I have enormous admiration for all those guys, and they're old earth guys. They've come to believe that Genesis 1 at least is, is not to be taken as literally as it sounds because they believe science really has demonstrated the universe has to be much older than just a few thousand years. I understand that logic. I really do. And yet I still am a young earther, and I'll explain all that. I also probably need to point out that those who accept the day-age interpretation, those guys that I just mentioned, please don't confuse that with something called theistic evolution. There's a big difference. Hugh Ross believes the universe is old, but he totally rejects evolution. He believes God just intervened supernaturally millions of times through millions of years to create every new species of life. So they recognize that evolution doesn't make much sense and life could not have evolved higher life forms from lower life forms. The theistic evolutionists believe that Darwin basically got it right, but somehow God directed this process of evolution. So to them, life has evolved, just like Darwin claimed it did, but God controlled it. So when you look closely at what they believe, theistic evolution seems to be, to me, uh, kind of self-contradictory. I'll explain that too in just a minute. And there's some other ways to interpret Genesis 1. Some, some believe it's totally allegorical. It's just symbolic. It's just like poetry not pointing to anything literal at all. Others believe that whoever wrote Genesis, and they would deny probably that Moses did it, but they'd say whoever did it just borrowed from some other cultures. They had some creation myths here and some creation myths here, and they kind of put them all together and came out with a new creation myth, and there it is in Genesis 1. Another way of looking at it was popular in our Southern Baptist seminaries back in the, I guess, 1950s and 60s and 70s. Our seminaries back then were heavily influenced by a, a way of doing theology called neo-orthodoxy. And they would say things like, well, the only parts of the Bible that really matter are the parts that teach us about salvation. And they would say things like, hey, the Bible's not meant to be a book of history or a book of science. It's not a science textbook. Therefore, we're not going to worry if it has errors of a historical or scientific nature. It's just irrelevant. It's, it doesn't matter. Don't take it too seriously. Some people would see Genesis, well, they said maybe it was written by some men who had some kind of spiritual experiences internally with God, and they kind of came up with this idea, and maybe they were inspired, but only in a general sense, like people are inspired today, and they see these things written by fallible men with just creative imaginations. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand everything that I'm saying here. In my humble opinion, people can be strong, conservative, Bible-believing Christians and 
of course, except the more literal young earth position that I accept. But I believe they can also be strong, conservative, Bible-believing Christians and accept the gap theory or the day-age theory and maybe, maybe some cases, even theistic evolution. There was a period in my own life when I was very young, in my late teens and early 20s, when if you had asked me, I would have said I was a theistic evolutionist. I could explain the story behind that, but it would take too much time right here. I'll explain it in other places. But it, it was before I really understood what I was talking about. I was just trying to get a handle on all this at that time. When I came to understand a little better, I realized it's really strange for some people to claim to believe in God and also claim to believe in evolution. The problem with theistic evolution, so-called, in my opinion, is that the scientific evidence for evolution really turns out to be very, very weak. And the scientific evidence against evolution is very strong. And I know a lot of people seem shocked by that because they just assume that everybody believes evolution uh, because the naturalist, you remember the philosophical naturalist, uh, they, that's all a God. So they say, of course everybody believes evolution because they believe it because it's all they've got. I guess I need to point out, when I'm using the word evolution here, I'm talking about what sometimes the scientists call macroevolution, that is, one species changing gradually into a higher life form. I'm not talking about variation within a species. Please don't be deceived by that. Has anybody ever tried to fool you that way? There are some evolutionists that like to point out the fact that, well, obviously there's variation within species, right? I mean, they may ask you, don't you believe that bacteria can develop immunity to antibiotics? And you say, well, of course they can. Oh, you're an evolutionist. That's evolution. No, 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 no. Those are two very different things. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Logically, it's a logical fallacy. We call it bait and switch. They're saying, here's something that you certainly believe. So if you believe that, surely you'll believe this. And they try to substitute macroevolution, things changing from something simple to something complex to just variation within a species. Of course, we know that dog breeders can change the way dogs look and the size of dogs and all that sort of thing. Yes, within a species, things can change a lot. So don't fall into that logical fallacy. Don't be deceived by that. <laughs> Many atheistic evolutionists who don't even believe in God have admitted that the evidence for evolution is very, very weak. They acknowledge it. I know it's not usually broadcast, but you can find these guys have acknowledged it. But you see, they've got to be committed to, to somehow life got here, right? <laughs> Without God's intervention, because there's no God. So evolution is all they can come up with. So if you accept God in the first place, that God did it, then it seems strange that you'd claim he did it through a process as so little evidence. Why on earth would you select both God and evolution? Because the only reason they're selecting evolution is because they don't believe in God. Now, I'll tell you what I think is going on. There are people who believe in God who think it makes them more acceptable to the secularists out there, makes them sound more sophisticated, makes them sound like they're more uh, knowledgeable and intelligent and, and academically equipped if they claim to believe in evolution. They've probably just been overwhelmed with the sheer number of people who consider themselves intellectual who've assured them that evolution is certainly true that all real scientists accepted a scientific fact and they could throw out a lot of jargon and they could make you think they know what they're talking about. But they've probably not looked at the evidence for themselves. They don't really know. They just get overwhelmed by it. Did you realize that just a few years ago, 2016 actually, several really secular scientists at the annual meeting of the Royal Society meets every year in London, some of the most brilliant scientists in the world, 
these guys got together and, and some of them were saying, look, guys, we got to come up with a more creative way to explain how life got here and how higher forms of life got here. Because they were realizing, some of the real serious thinkers who studied this stuff, they're realizing evolution's not working very well as an explanation. But you're not going to hear the secular media talk much about that. When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary back in Fort Worth in the early 1970s, I took a philosophy of religion seminar. There were 13 of us in that seminar, 13 students. And of the 13 of us, 10 of the 13 said, the professor asked us specifically about this, 10 of them raised their hands when he said, do you believe God created life through the process of evolution? Only three of us had come to the conclusion that he did not use evolution. So of the three of us who said we did not, it's interesting, in the 13 that were in the class, only two of us had any kind of undergraduate science degree. I was one of them. I had a degree in physics. And the other guy, I don't remember what his degree was in, but we were two of the three dissenters. Now, what do you, how do you explain that? The two in there who had more science than the others, and I admit mine was physics, mine wasn't biology, but I had to take microbiology and some other courses in chemistry and things like that that would have lent itself to trying to understand these things a little bit. But why would these guys who hadn't, didn't have any science background, why they assume it's true, and the ones who had a couple of us who had science backgrounds thought, no, it's not really true. Well, I think it's because the two of us who had a little bit of science, as we began to get stronger in the Lord, we thought, we got to study this. we got to try to figure this out. We need to dig into this and see what the truth really is. And the others had just assumed that all the professors and all these academics, surely they know what they're talking about. <laughs> but they don't. Not when they reject God at the beginning. God says they're fools. Like I said, I think that young earthers had the advantage of using the most natural and plain understanding of the creation account. I don't think anyone would have proposed the gap theory or the day-age theory or theistic evolution or this neo-orthodox idea that biblical statements about history and science can't be trusted if it weren't for the fact that scientists who really are philosophical naturalists started claiming that it was foolish and it was silly and it was ludicrous to believe in a young earth. They started scorning and laughing and making fun of people who believed in a young earth. And so Christians who kind of consider themselves a little more intellectual became intimidated by the so-called assured results of science. They didn't want people making fun of them and laughing at them. So they just, they couldn't, they didn't know. They didn't dig into it. They didn't try to figure it out for themselves. They just accepted that, well, maybe God did it through evolution. This is just a common thing. Okay, that's as far as we got in Sunday school. So I'm going to stop right here. And you can pick up this study if you want to continue it in part two.